Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. I'm Andre Viscontis. Welcome to another episode of Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. If you find yourself spending a little bit more time on the internet these days than usual, and you haven't yet discovered Google's Ngram Viewer, I highly recommend it as a way of, you know, killing a bit of time. You use the Ngram Viewer to look at the frequency of words in books. Now, this is something that only the internet could provide for us, because until books were digitized, it would be virtually impossible to figure out how frequent a particular word was across the entire span of all the books written in the English language. But say if you put in a word like, oh, I don't know, pandemic, all of a sudden you see an exponential curve that starts around the year maybe 1990. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Well, there are a lot of things that the internet can tell us about language this fundamental human capacity. But not only that, but the internet is changing the way we use language. And unlike other cultural shifts, which maybe didn't leave quite so permanent a trace or allow us so easily to track data, the internet has essentially allowed us to watch these changes in our language in real time. Gretchen McCulloch is an internet linguist. She has a master's in linguistics from McGill University and runs the blog All Things Linguistic as well as Lingthusiasm, which is a podcast for linguist enthusiasts, and she is definitely one of them. She wrote a book called Because Internet, which is probably one of my favorite titles of any nonfiction book this year, Understanding the New Rules of Language. Gretchen McCulloch, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show because I recently did this project for The Great Courses where I wrote 24 lectures on how technology is shaping how we think. And I came across your book, Because Internet, after I had already you know, listed out all the topics. And it was like my big mistake. I did not include how the internet is changing our language in that oh, series. Oh, no. They'll just have to bring me on to do a whole course on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could. You could. Uh, so I'm so thrilled to at least give my Inquiring Minds listeners uh, the information that I failed to give the Great Courses lecture series. Um, So let's talk about the sort of reason why you wrote this book to begin with. I think like a lot of linguists, I have a difficult time turning that linguist part of my brain off. 
you know? So if I'm at the pub with somebody and you're talking to me, I might kind of zone out for a minute while I'm listening to what you're saying and start thinking about your vowels. And this is just how my brain works. And so uh, I spend a lot of time on the internet, like many of us do these days. And especially when I started my blog, All Things Linguistic, in 2012, um, and I was really spending a lot more time on Tumblr and, and Twitter and like noticing uh, different things going by, and I started writing shorter articles. And it began to be apparent to me that there was really more there than I could really get at in just one short piece, and that it would be very exciting to have the whole space of a book to explore that. Because some people have asked, you know, how how can you claim to, you know, encompass the entire internet within the 200, 300 pages of a book? And this is a difficult question. But in some respects, it's easier because you have the entire book. Whereas if you're writing a given article or a blog post or something, you can't assume that anyone has any particular background. Whereas when you're halfway through chapter five, you can assume people read the first part of chapter five. So you have a bit more space to get at big ideas in the format of a book, even though it's so analog. And I think that's what's so compelling to me about your book is that it doesn't just list a whole bunch of new words that the internet has, you know, given birth to, or even sort of just like, hey, now we speak in shorter sentences, we use hashtags. It really delves more deeply into sort of how this is shaping how we think and how we communicate. Yeah, I really wanted to try to future-proof it as much as possible. You know, of course, there were things that I didn't anticipate, you know, I didn't foresee the rise of TikTok because, uh, you know, it was getting off just as my book was going into copy edits. <laughs> so uh, I don't have a chapter about TikTok. But, you know, the, the bigger picture is I also didn't want to say, okay, like, here's a list of memes that were cool while I was writing the book. Because that goes out of date so quickly. If you want to know what a new meme is, you need to look that up on the internet itself. But what are some of the bigger questions that we're trying to address when it comes to online communication. Things like, how do we use typographical signals like punctuation and capitalization to signal tone of voice? Or what sort of role do emoji and emoticons and GIFs and uh, images play in terms of our communication? And so even if emoji aren't cool in 10 years, you know, emoticons have been around since 1986. The first plain text emoticon, smiley face, was recorded in the 80s. And so I don't think that the overall genre of, you know, using various sorts of additions, you know, face, facial expression additions or gestural additions to convey uh, our intentions more clearly is going to completely disappear, even if the specific incarnation, whether it's emoticons or emoji or GIFs or something else that hasn't been invented yet, whether those specific incarnation changes, the communicative impulse that we have behind them of we're trying to convey our intentions more clearly, we're trying to convey sarcasm or irony or joking or um, seriousness or sincerity or all of these types of things, those are very big picture human universal things. Like, you know, people have been trying to convey sarcasm in writing. There are proposals for sarcastic punctuation marks dating back to the 1500s. So that's not, you know, just an internet phenomenon. Yeah. And in fact, you have this kind of, I think, really useful framework about how to think about the different types of communication on the internet or in general. So you kind of divide it into spoken and written and then informal and formal. And of course, those two categories interact. Yeah, a lot of people get very worried when it comes to online communication because they're like, oh, no, people aren't writing like they're writing in a book. And sure, they're not. But if you look at speech, we've had multiple genres of speech for as long as we know back into recorded history. 
We've had the sort of speech that you have, you know, going about your day-to-day life, talking to people, talking to your friends, your family, your pets. And then we've had the formal genres, which some of the first texts that we have written down are epic poems like the Iliad, the Odyssey, Beowulf. And the ancient Greeks didn't go around like having their ordinary conversations in Daxilic hexameter. They had ordinary conversations that didn't look like the epic poems either. And, you know, even today, if you want to become an effective public speaker, you need to practice, you need to train, you need to get feedback, you you need to learn how to communicate in this different genre that's a bit artificial because the situation is this sort of different situation. And I think of the book style or, you know, newspaper style writing as kind of like a public speech. It's formal, it's rehearsed, it's edited, it's got all these sorts of constraints around who's talking at once, like only one person's doing the entire uh, speech or the entire article. Whereas social media and chat conversations are a lot more like the, you know, back and forth conversations uh, that we have in a more casual context. And, you know, you don't want somebody, you know, somebody gives a really good TED talk, you don't want someone to be giving you a TED talk at the bar. Because then it's like, excuse me, like, I also want to talk. Like, this is supposed to be a conversation, not a monologue. And the same thing is, I don't think people need to be worried or anxious that they're not communicating like a book or a newspaper when you're chatting with your friends on, you know, text messaging or, you know, Instagram or whatever, because you're you're in a different genre and it's okay to not give a TED Talk at the bar. In fact, it's a good idea to not go around at the bar talking for 20 minutes <laughs> about big ideas without letting uh, your <laughs> your friends like have a word in edgewise. And it's also good to be more open to experimentation and open to, you know, converging on, you know, a more relaxed way of talking uh, when you're having a, a conversation in written format as well. And one of the things that I've noticed, actually, is that I've now been teaching at the university level for almost 10 years. And I have noticed actually a pretty significant shift in the formality of emails. So I know young people these days like emails for old people. So basically, that's not, you know, the place where they have these informal conversations. And so when they do sit down to write an email, there is a dear, you know, Dr. Professor Visconis, there's, you know, there's a there's a salutation, there's a sign off, uh, the punctuation is correct, you know, all that kind of stuff, which wasn't the case, say, you know, eight or nine years ago, when when email was kind of just, uh, it seemed much less of a formal way of communicating. Yeah, absolutely. When I was looking back at, I looked at the history of email and people's commentary about email etiquette uh, in Because Internet. And email predates what we think of as the the web, you know, where you have websites and you can look stuff up on Google. Uh, email is older than that. It's, you know, when, when computers were first being networked, one of the first things people did was send messages back and forth to each other. So there are commentaries about emails from the 1970s. And one of the big things that people were saying in the 70s was email is super informal, it's casual, people have all these typos. Even when you're sending an email to a superior who you would, you know, address very formally on the phone, because of course a lot of business was happening over the phone at this point, you'd address them very formally on the phone. But in an email, everyone understands you can be casual. And there's this great quote from uh, Naomi Barron, who also researches internet linguistics about the 90s, where she's like, yeah, people who would put, you know, be very formal about their punctuation in a memo uh, in a workplace context, they send you all these typos in their email, and that's totally acceptable, and that's what we do in email, um, and that's the thing. But by around 2001, when David Crystal's book about internet language was published, Crystal comments on this 
uh, remark from Barron in the in the earlier in the nineties, just a few years earlier, and says, I, "I receive a lot of emails that aren't riddled with typos anymore. Like this doesn't seem like it's it's actually an informal." And now I think you know a lot of students don't necessarily. Um, send letters anymore. You know, they <laughs> may never have bought a stamp. Um, but they so they see email as this very formal context because they're not emailing with their friends. It's a thing that you do exclusively in this sort of very workplace context. Like when I was a teenager, my friends and I would exchange emails over summer vacation sometimes if we weren't seeing each other. <laughs> but that's not what kids are doing now. They're sending messages on, you know, Instagram or TikTok or, you know, Snapchat or various texting or various places with their friends. And then email is only this workplace context, and so their their sense of the level of formality is sometimes very high. And sometimes the professors get annoyed because they write the students write very long and detailed emails with like paragraphs, and then the professors will send back like two words, sounds good. And the student thinks this feels really rude to them because they've put in all this effort into uh, making this very formal email, and the professor actually thinks that it's a less formal environment than the student does. And also, the professor has like hundreds more emails to deal with than the student does, so they're, you know, trying to save time by by putting in shorter responses. But there, there's a you know a form an expectation mismatch sometimes in the opposite direction as one might expect when it comes to email generational norms, because I think that younger people, sometimes if they're not exposed to email at all, they end up erring on the side of way less formal. But then once they receive some email training, they end up erring on the side of very formal. And both of these are not quite what people who've been emailing for, you know, 15 years, 20 years are used to. I mean, it's interesting that you say that. That's, that's exactly me. You know, I'll have a st student write me this long email and I'll respond with one of the like Google suggested <laughs> phrases. <laughs> sure, thanks. Or sounds good to me or whatever. And, you know, in my own mind, I think like I'm not trying to, you know, be rude, obviously. Uh, but, you know, email is like I'm very comfortable with that medium. That is my medium. I know it. I don't know TikTok. You know, I don't know. You know I, recently, one of my students schooled me on the fact that like, you know, using the word K, just the letter K to mean OK in a text is actually really rude. But I did that all the time. Right. I can tell when I'm emailing with someone who's like of my same email generation. Yeah. Because right. it's just, it's so smooth. Like we, we have the same greetings and closings. We have the same, like, you know, I, like I can tell, you know, within like 10 years of their age. <laughs> and then I can also tell when I'm emailing with somebody who's not in my email generation, because if they're like a couple decades older than me, I'll get all these emails that begin like Gretchen comma. And I'm like, oh my God, what have I done wrong? But this is normal for, you know, the kind of, I want to say, like, middle manager age, uh, you know, or like, you know, you're in your 50s and 60s. And again, they've been emailing for decades, and this is what everybody in that group does. And then, it, like, it's, it's, it's also normalized. I'm sure they feel very comfortable with each other. And then I can tell when I get emails from somebody who's younger than I am, because especially, you know, I have my email address on my website, and so people sometimes send me, like, very random emails who I don't know. And one of the things that younger people do when they're emailing me is they won't address me by any sort of name. And you can tell, I can tell, it feels very strongly to me that they don't know how to address me because they're like, well, you know, you're probably a bit older than I am. Like, I'm writing to you as a, you know, high school student or undergraduate student or something like this. You're in a bit of a position of power. I'm kind of used to addressing adults by some sort of title, maybe. So they don't know whether they should use a title for me. But also, like, I'm not their teacher or their professor, so I don't really have a title. And so they'll send me an email that's like, hi there or hey there. And you know the there is because, like, it feels too short and they're, like, uncomfortable that it's not long enough. But 
my professor friends, when they get an email that says, hi there, hey there, because like, I, I feel like I know why it happens. And it's because they don't know how to address me. And so they're trying to be super polite. So it doesn't bother me at all. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're trying to be super polite. But when I talk to professor friends, they're like, oh, my God, the student just addressed me as hey there. And it's so rude. And I'm like, no, 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 your student is trying to be so polite because they don't know whether they should be calling you doctor or professor or your first name or what. I mean, so that brings up a point that I think is actually, um, you know, our, at least, our, you know, our generation really struggled with the fact that uh, tone of voice is really hard to impart over email compared to speaking to someone in person, just picking up the phone. And so often email exchanges can get very heated where people get offended, even though the intention was not to offend. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and the sense that, you know, how do we how have we evolved a tone of voice now through our internet communications that maybe is making this problem better or worse? I think that where tone of voice really shines in internet communication is the places where you have a little bit more back back and forth feedback, like chat or even shorter social media posts, you know, Twitter or comment threads on on Facebook or Instagram where people are, are commenting on a, a, a video or a picture or a story or something. And I think in those environments, you do get this sort of informal uh, tone of voice signals, you know, things like people signaling that a question is sarcastic or rhetorical or disingenuous by omitting the question mark or indicating that a statement is uh, a little bit surprising or, you know, that they, they want to produce it with this sort of rising intonation at the end by adding a question mark, even if it's not necessarily a question. So, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, nice subtle thing. So now you have this like four way distinction with question marks. You have statement with, with and without a question mark. You have question with and without a question mark. You can now signal four things. That's really cool. As opposed to just being able to signal two things where you have like statement, no question mark, question with a question mark. So that's really cool. I think email is really on hard mode because you don't have that immediate feedback. And the thing that I'd like to encourage people to do is cut everybody a little bit more slack. You know, because if someone's genuinely trying to annoy you or to aggravate you, there are plenty of very explicit ways that we all have <laughs> for telling people off. But if it's just a subtle thing, uh, you know, maybe they're not actually trying to piss you off. Uh, and, you know, you either have the option of being more explicit about what you'd like up front. So I encourage a lot of professors, for example, to, if you want emails in a particular style from your students, you can tell them this in class. You know, the same way that you can say, I want your essays in 12 point times New Roman, you can tell your students, you need to include your student number in your emails to me. Or you need to put the name of the class and the section in the subject line because I get emails from all sorts of different sections and I need to be able to sort them. You can just tell the students that. You don't have to be annoyed when they don't do it because they haven't read your mind. You can just spend like five minutes on the first day of class telling them what you want. And when I've told, when professors have done this on my advice, they're like, wow, my students send such amazing emails now. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> or if you want your students to address you as Dr. So-and-so in emails, just tell them. They'll do it. They're already used to jumping through all these hoops for you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. The tone of voice thing is so personal to us, though. I, you know, I, I understand that it really is just such, such a huge part of identity. And I, I want to talk a little bit about tone of voice on the internet and how it reflects our identity and how that's sort of changing. Um, because, like, for example, there's a lot of appropriation that can happen of terms on the internet that is harder to do in spoken language without really seeming like a fraud. <laughs> um, and so you, you have a couple of examples in your book, like Lit and Bay and, and, and things like that. And so can you tell it? Talk a little bit about sort of this problem or this, uh, you know, th- this this kind of way of 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 people taking on uh, other other specific tones of voices that that are involved in their identities. Yeah, I mean, I want to preface this by saying that the you know cycle of linguistic and cultural appropriation by kind of you know mainstream Anglophone culture from African Americans, especially in in the U.S., uh, is not just an internet thing and in fact much predates the internet you know so a lot of um slang terms or terms related to fashion or music or things like that things that are cool um get appropriated from african american culture whether that's like you know music terms whether that's jazz or rap or all the way through um i think in the internet context there's a sense of this sort of decontextualization that can happen so it may be easier to but also the sense of kind of recontextualization. So there's, you know, it may be easier to, to pick, you can pick something up because it gets sort of adopted by a white mainstream and say, oh, like, this just seems cool. I'm going to do it. But then you can also get uh, attention being drawn back to the fact that this came from a specific person or this came from a particular culture um, because you don't have to go through a whole bunch of gatekeepers to have these things sort of found out. So I'm thinking of, for example, there was this dance on TikTok that's very popular now that was invented by this like young 14-year-old black girl. And, you know, people were adopting her dance. And she was like, it's great that people are adopting my dance, but I'd like them to give me credit for it. And so, you know, she was able to, with, you know, the help of a lot of people amplifying this message, saying, you know, this is actually a dance that I invented personally. It's not just like some dance that came from nowhere in particular. Um, it's cool to do my dance, but like I'd like to be known as the person that made the dance rather than just having people do it and not crediting me for it. Um, and so I think you can you can kind of bring more attention back to the original creators of things in a way that could get kind of whitewashed. You know, like Elvis stole a lot of his music from black artists at the time, and they didn't really have Twitter to go on and say like, hey, Elvis, like this guy, why is he getting famous and not Sister Rosetta Tharp? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really interesting. In some ways, the internet allows for the exchange of ideas and information without credit very easily. Uh, and but at the same time, now people are getting called out on that. And it's becoming, you know, very poor etiquette to, uh, you know, share something and not give appropriate credit. Yeah. And, you know, like, even if there was a period when people were doing this dance, uh, which I have now forgotten the name of because I'm not a cool teenager anymore. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I was ever a cool teenager. I was once a teenager. The, you know, even if people were doing the dance for a while without crediting, uh, I think her name is Jalila for for it, you know, she's now been on Ellen, you know, as the person who made this dance and stuff like that. So she has been getting more sort of mainstream recognition for it as well. So a lot of us are... Uh practicing social distancing and do spend a lot of time in our homes over the next few weeks. Here at Inquiring Minds, we're trying to make it a COVID-19 free zone. So I don't want to talk about the virus in particular, but I do want to talk about uh, sort of what that might mean for how we find ways of communicating and whether you think that this is a kind of unprecedented time in which uh, the internet is going to be shaping, you know, our, our language. I think what I've been noticing just in the past couple of weeks is a, you know, big increase in people doing online video and live streams and stuff like that. And, you know, video conferencing and live streams were definitely around in previous years. But this idea that like, oh, we can we can move everything to video, uh, we can, you know, do things more in a video context. And that comes with its own set of like things, linguistic norms that are still being worked out. So something like, okay, if you have a video call between two people, it's relatively straightforward. But if you have a video call between five people or 10 people or 50 people, uh, working out norms like, do you need to, should everybody be muting their mic unless you're actually talking so that you don't have 50 people's feedback loops in the background? on 50 people like rustling their papers. You could, so if you evolve some sort of norm of you mute your mic unless you want to talk because this helps manage a larger group uh, or things like um, managing parallel video and chat streams. So a big, a really interesting sort of new domain of video conferencing, and this hasn't been traditionally true of any other existing communicative format, is having both the video streams, so that's the audio and video stream going at the same time as a chat stream involving the same people. And having those two parallel environments of the same people where you have two channels going, but everybody can be participating in both to some extent, that's not something you have in a face-to-face context, right? So in a face-to-face context, you can have a person giving a talk or a lecture or, you know, chairing a meeting or something. And maybe you can be exchanging notes with, like, the person next to you. You can have a piece of paper between you and you can be, you know, sitting there in class, like, being like, oh, my God, this class is so boring. Or you can be there in the meeting being like, when are they going to let us go for lunch? You know, I can't believe the quarterly report is taking so long. So you can kind of exchange notes with, like, one person next to you and you can be pretty subtle about it. But you don't have everybody else in the meeting potentially also uh, exchanging things in a text format. You need to manage, and we have tools for managing the flow of conversations in large groups in a face-to-face context. You know, things like the norm of raising your hand, like that has to get taught to us. It gets taught when we're very young in school, like the teachers are telling like the five-year-olds and the six-year-olds, like you need to raise your hand when you want to talk because I can't manage 20 or 30 of you all talking at once. And we need a similar set of norms when it comes to video conferencing, things like muting the mic or, you know, having, say, you know, if one person's giving a Q&A session or something and then everyone else is ans- asking their questions in a chat box and then somebody's keeping an eye on the chat box and surfacing which questions are relevant uh, for the answering for the Q&As, things like that. You know, these are formats. It's like learning how to raise your hand where uh, or, you know, in a fancy meeting, you have like Robert's rules of order. Or if you want to like add something to agenda, you have to go through all of these sorts of things like the motion. Somebody has proposed the motion. Somebody has seconded the motion. You know, we do have these sort of artificial type ways of you know, having bigger conversations than 
you would ordinarily if you're just sitting around your living room or the pub with your friends, ways of managing having large group conversations in a when context where you're trying to like accomplish a particular set of items or agenda. And I think we're still working out what those things look like in a video conferencing setup. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, I remember when in in college, I was first exposed to Robert's rules of order and how to handle a meeting. And it was very exciting to me, you know, me being the nerd that I am. It was like, wow, there's like all these things you have to go through. But if I know them, the meeting can be super efficient and everybody can have their say. And I understood the logic behind it. And then it felt like as, you know, uh, a lot of our meetings and exchanges became email based and things got less formal, that those kinds of rules started to seem very archaic. But now I feel like, you know, as we are doing more or Zoom conferencing, or I guess I should say internet conferencing. I don't want to just give Zoom all of the props, although they seem to be doing very well at the moment. But you know, it's sort of it's is changing. And there, as you as you mentioned, there is this set of etiquette of like, you know, if someone does not mute their microphone, like in my head, I, my eyes are rolling like every single time there's like a wrestle. Right. It's like somebody it's like... talking without raising their hand. You're like, okay, well, you can get away with it once or twice, maybe. But like, you should really be doing this thing that we're all doing here. Um, or like, we all need to be wearing headphones because like that will help the audio quality for everybody or something like that. But email also has these types of norms. Like, how do you decide who you're going to CC in an email? Who you're going to BCC? When are you going to reply all? When are you going to reply to just one person? Like, these are similar types of norms for who's talking, who has the floor, how are we controlling, who's a part of this conversation, who's contributing to it, and who isn't. Yeah, and and, and I think to what one one other thing that I've kind of noticed over time is that my students are much less likely to talk in class. It seems like every year it gets worse and worse and worse, where the actual you know speaking in person seems harder. Uh, and I certainly know for me, like picking up the phone and calling someone is way harder than sending an email. Whereas for my mom, it's the opposite. Like she'll spend all day on the phone, uh, and it'll take her three hours to write an email. Um, and so. You know, I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit about that kind of macro level change across generations and where do you see that what's happening now and where do you see that trend going? Like, are we actually becoming less comfortable speaking in person or is that just, you know, a kind of a, a generational shift that is always there? Well, I, I think there's I think there's like three different things going on here. Uh, and one of them is, so this is very anecdotal, but so far, uh, because I've been following a bunch of linguistics profs who've been moving their classes online, uh, and somebody was reporting back from their first online class, and they were saying it actually went great. Uh, and some of the students who don't normally talk in class were actually talking in the video conferencing setup. Uh, and I don't know whether that was they were talking in voice on the video or they were talking in the text-based chat, but uh, they heard from from more students or different students than they might have heard of otherwise, which I thought was a really interesting sort of thing to add there. But the second thing that I wanted to point out here is that telephones also, in addition to, you know, email and uh, Robert's Rules of Order and video conferencing, they also have their own sets of norms. First of all, they were an adjustment when the telephone was first introduced. Um, you have this really beautiful complaint from Mark Twain, who was one of the first people to get a telephone uh, in the U.S. And he, he had this sort of love-hate relationship with the telephone where he was an early adopter with it, but he also found it deeply, deeply weird when someone else was on the phone to be overhearing only half of a conversation. And he just thought this was the weirdest thing. And when people first started using the phone, uh, they had to figure out what you would say when you answered it. Because so there were several different proposals. Uh, one of them was ahoy hoy. One of them was what is wanted. And one of them was hello, because hello was not a greeting yet at this point. Hello only dates to the telephone. And before that, it meant something more like kind of what you think of 
hey as having meant uh, a couple generations ago, because hey has been in English for hundreds and hundreds of years, but it was originally more of a, a attention getter. Like, hey, can you just help me with this? Or like, hey, you dropped something rather than a greeting. And so hello was the type of thing that you say, you, you may still do this if you're like wandering into an, into an empty house. You'd be like, hello, is anybody home? Or if the line drops suddenly during a call, you're more likely to say, hello, hello, are you still there? Rather than like, hi, hi, are you still there? <laughs> So hello has this sort of like attention getting function. Um, it's also related to hello, which was a thing that people said when they were like hunting foxes and stuff. So hello has this interesting relationship. One thing that I've noticed is that when I'm talking to somebody in voice in a scheduled manner, so I've either been like texting with them and then we decide to switch to voice or uh, we have a scheduled meeting or something like that, I'm less likely to start that conversation with hello because that I don't have to wonder if they're there in the same sort of way. So even if you're talking to somebody on, you know, like video, like Skype or something, where you can have the option to exchange like chat messages first, and then you can pick up, you can send the call. So you can say, hey, are you ready? Um, and then the person can say, oh, just give me a sec to fill up my water glass. And then you can start the call. And then it's weird, would be weird to start that call with hello, because you've already established that the other person is there. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I really struggle with uh, starting an interview on this podcast, because I often have a conversation with the guest before I say, welcome to Inquiring Minds. And oftentimes I'll say, welcome to Inquiring Minds, and then they'll just be silence. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or you need to, if you say something like, thanks for coming, then they'll often say, oh, thanks for having me, or I'm, you're welcome, or something. You, you need, because like, thank you triggers in people's minds, oh, I have to say something in response to thank you. But yeah, you, you need to sort of twig something there because you're starting the conversation sort of artificially at a, a second time. Or it, it's the same thing like if a call gets dropped or let's say you've been talking to somebody on the phone or whatever and you're like, oh, wait, um, that's the door. Uh, I just got to go answer the answer the door. I'll be back and I'll call you back in two minutes. That two minute later call, you'll often just kind of pick it up immediately and be like, oh, hey, you again. Rather than like, hello, who's this? You know, whereas if you pick up a call from an unknown number, if you if you ever pick up a call from an unknown number, which is getting less and less common these days, um, people will often say hello, like with this sort of question, who is this and why are you calling me? But, you know, if you have a kind of short-sighted view of history, you could say, oh no, hello is dying, like what's happening? But in a longer view of history, hello is only like about 100 years old itself. So it's not something weird or bad that people aren't saying hello, it's just, it's adapting to the sort of communicative context and the communicative norms. Something I also think is really interesting about where, you know, technologically mediated conversation has been going is that the video phone had been predicted ever since like the 60s. People, you know, they, they had televisions, they had telephones. They were like, what if we combined the two? This is not a new idea. It's really not a new idea. And yet the problem was before things like call display or, you know, cell phones where you have contacts and you can see who your contacts are that are calling, and especially asynchronous forms of communication like texting that allow you to, and email that allow you to like make appointments to call someone or to talk to someone via voice or via video. The only way or the most efficient way to schedule a call with someone was to call them because there was no other real-time communication thing that everybody had. Like you can't, nobody, people didn't have telegraphs in their homes by and large, right? So or you're not going to like send someone a letter being like, I'm going to call you on Sunday at, at 7 p.m. Like you, you could, but it's not very efficient. So first of all, there was this really robust norm of if a phone rings, you absolutely have to drop everything and answer it. 
there's this survey from the 90s where they asked people if the phone rings and you're in the middle of a serious argument with your spouse, would you answer it? And the vast majority of people said yes. <laughs> and I, I redid this survey myself, you know, not with proper survey methodology, obviously, because I'm not a polling firm. But I asked a bunch of people just to see because I thought, I don't think most people would say yes at this point. And the people that I asked who are not a representative sample because I'm not a survey company, but the general thing that happens when I tell people this is they're like, oh my god, I wouldn't answer that. <laughs> and not only do they say I wouldn't answer it during a serious argument with my spouse, is they say I wouldn't answer it if I was doing like anything interesting that I didn't want to be interrupted with. And I might not answer it at all if it was an unknown number, because if it's important, they'll just text me or they'll leave a message. And so, you know, there's there's one narrative that says, oh, we've gotten so much more interruptible now because we're all texting all the time. But another narrative says we've gotten better at controlling other kinds of interruptions because the phone ringing is also an interruption. And people a couple decades ago were really willing to be interrupted by that. The idea like the phone rings, you have to answer it because you have no way of knowing what it is unless you answer it. And it could be important. So you answer it all the time. Whereas now we have all these like less intrusive ways of getting someone's intention. So the phone has gotten less urgent. So proof positive that, in fact, the internet is changing how we communicate. Um, I just want to remind our listeners that Gretchen's book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language, is available at booksellers everywhere. So I wanted to end, I know we're running short on time, I wanted to end with one question that um, is putting you a little bit on the spot. So my apologies uh, to start out to, you know, just to, to end that way. But I, you know, the internet language, these are things that get people really heated. And I was wondering if there was one finding in your book that you talk about that gets people really angry that you think will become a sort of non-entity in, in the next few years, and we'll look back and be like, why did that make us so mad? One that I find really interesting generational gap on is this idea of whether you're ending your text with a period. Because a lot of younger people, and it's not exclusively an age thing, it also has to do with how much time you spend online and things. A lot of younger people are saying the unmarked way, the normal way of ending a short text message or chat message uh, is with no period. And if you add any punctuation, that punctuation conveys some sort of message, whether it's a question mark or an exclamation mark or a period. You know, the exclamation mark can add, you know, excitement or sincerity. The question mark can add this sort of tentativeness or or something like this. Uh, and the period can add adds this note of formality or solemnity. And if you add this note of formality or solemnity to a serious message, it reinforces it. So if you say, oh, no, that sounds terrible, period, then that can be really, you know, additionally sincere. But if you write a positive message like sounds great, period, the period has this effect uh, to people who have this norm of adding a note of seriousness. So instead of saying sounds great, like with an exclamation mark where it's, or no punctuation mark where it sounds positive, you have sounds great, which feels like it's passive aggressive or sarcastic. So this is often confused for the period's always passive aggressive and it's always sarcastic. And that's not the case. In a longer message, it's a multi-sentence message, the period is still pretty neutral. But if you're sending a single sentence message and in, in an informal context, the period has this additional sort of weight to its meaning for at least some people. And the older people that I talk with uh, or the people who spend less time online uh, who I talk with are really in shock that this, you know, period that they thought was completely emotionally neutral is actually conveying these messages that they didn't necessarily realize to some of their interlocutors. 
Gretchen McCulloch, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it for another episode. Go and spend some time with the Ngram viewer or the many myriad of ways in which the internet can help us analyze the way that it's changing our language. Now that's meta. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. I'll see you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.